If you are vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Your next game is going to be full of nail-biting pressure, and here's why. In this episode, we find some answers to what missing piece leads to the majority of issues that GMs face. And what single bit of structure enhances even the best adventure ideas. And can we use these steps to reverse the critical flaw of one of the most promising modules ever made? Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. I'm Jordan. And I'm his brother, Travis. So we're going to kick the year off with what we think is the single most important DM quality of life technique. Like once we started to get our heads wrapped around this, we can turn almost any idea that we have into a good, functional, engaging game of D&D. Oh, this, this is the one. This is the one technique. If I were to give any advice to anyone, it's to learn how to do this one thing. And this is like Pi May teaching Uma Thurman the five-point exploding <laughs> heart technique. This yeah. is uh, restricted knowledge that nobody gets wow. off the get-go. Are you saying we're the Pi May in this example? <laughs> I don't feel well, like a... <laughs> no, we're idiots that stumbled across the, yeah. the five-point. You know, just the person that was just jabbing themselves in the chest and then their heart exploded. <laughs> and they're like, this oh. Out. Well, look at that. Well, look at what I discovered. We Indiana jones our way into it in a dungeon. <laughs> right. So, okay, I'm being a little bit overzealous here with <laughs> our comparisons, but it is one of those things that nobody really tells you as a GM. As a new GM, you don't get this advice anywhere, and you end up stumbling your way through GMing in a way that is just really frustrating and you feel like you should be better, but why isn't this going easier for you? Right, even when you have these stories laid out in front of you, you're wondering why it's not really playing out the way that the book seems to suggest that it should. And it's just, it's honestly just so gut-wrenching. And we hope that maybe this episode will clear up a lot of challenges. Are you ready? You ready for what that is? It's ticking clocks. Ah, yes. Pressure. But we've already done an episode on ticking clocks. It was way back in the catalog. Yeah, you'll find it back there somewhere. But it's worth revisiting. And we've had some more time to think on this and continue to ruminate. So we figured why not bring it up again and apply even more granular steps to ticking clocks that allow you to apply it on a campaign level and then also right down to an individual combat level. Right, we've refined it a little bit, made it a little bit easier to, to use and think about. Because when you have players that are just cooking along, making decisions, moving forward, playing some version of what you've prepared for, that's ideal, that's the dream. The quality of life improvements that this makes, this one unlocking this business, it's unreal. And it can resolve a whole laundry list of issues that you may have run into as a GM or as a player. You know, like players get lost in their options. 
in that sandboxy style and they really are kind of split on where to go and what to do. Or you run into poorly written modules that struggle to get investment from the players into the story. Like you as the DM, you're sitting there wondering when the players are finally going to care about this book that you bought. (laughs) Players feeling railroaded. I mean, GMs have to do this sometimes because there's no other way to get them to the next step other than to say, no, you're going here. (laughs) And then players go, God damn it. Why are you doing this to us? It doesn't feel like an open world. Yeah. Yeah, it ends up with you having to ham-fistedly railroad players and lure them to their target with just the statement, you're doing this, guys. I can't <laughs> I can't do anything else. Or throwing the rumor of some magic item somewhere else just to get them to go to the next place where the story will continue. Then you have the lost GM prep time on the stuff that the players chose to avoid because you couldn't get them to it. Yeah, throw that week of work out. Players can often lose the plot or they get frustrated with the lack of direction, even though you're just saying, I thought I laid it out pretty clearly, guys. (laughs) But even right down to players being able to role play their motivation, because honestly, when your character has zero attachment to the story, sometimes it's really hard to role play. You just sit there and go, yeah, I guess I'm going to go along with this because I'm a hero. Yeah, that's what it all seems to boil down to sometimes. Or just a lack of intensity during the moments that you've built up in your head that you thought would be these nail-biting encounters and highlights of the game. But players are just kind of like casually rolling dice. Yeah. And then, like we mentioned as well, even that these steps can be applied to an individual combat If your combats feel sluggish, this can dramatically change the way they flow and how they feel both to the GM and to the players. And I mean, the list goes on. We could probably talk about all of the different things that comes up because we don't have a ticking clock involved, but we should probably actually get to it. Yeah, (laughs) let's let's get to it. So let's just go through an example of what a ticking clock looks like in a game. I mean, without a good ticking clock... Players can be tantalized by the endless possibilities without any pressure or momentum to worry about. Like the player says, if we don't have to go into that dungeon right now, why don't we see if we can find a party in the city first? Maybe there's some political intrigue at the tavern that we can learn about. Let's go poke around in all the dark corners of the city first. Yeah. And then on the GM side, well, maybe, but can you please just do the dungeon and I'll prep some cool intrigue for next session? pretty please oh okay no you're gonna go here okay i guess i'll just start whipping this shit up (laughs) off the cuff glad i didn't prep anything for this yeah and the best case scenario there is you make a shitty b campaign that you weren't planning for Uh, there's nothing (laughs) more gut-wrenching it just (laughs) feels shitty or they gorge themselves on that freedom you've given them only to then wonder two sessions later why the game feels slow Because you've been walking around. I don't know how to help you. This idiot must not be a very good GM. (laughs) I don't feel very attached to the story. Right. So we're going to go through a really fairly rock solid. I mean, we've used this for our games and we hope that it works for you. But it's really just five simple steps that can help you kind of box in your ideas and direct them towards giving you some real motivation in your games with a ticking clock that's counting down to something that your players actually give a shit about. 
This is the strategy stateroom, where inventive and cunning tactics are crafted for when they're needed most. So there's five steps. Find the stakes, foreshadow, add pressure, what we call danger now, and then the end. So we'll go through each one of those five. Under that first one, find the stakes, the first thing you want to think about is the threatenable element that the characters have, because that's where the stakes are going to come from. This is often, I think, one of the most key pieces because it's always missing in adventure books because the writers generally don't know who your players are and what they give a shit about, what they care about. So it's really hard to threaten something that they care about because the players could be anybody. So there's this unsaid rule that these books seem to have where it's like, you find a way to get your characters interested in the story we wrote. We don't know how to do it. <laughs> and so what we need to do is we need to find those stakes. What is the threatenable element? What do the characters care about that you can threaten? Hopefully, you can spend some time, even if you're starting a brand new campaign, just doing some very small kind of single encounter stories where you can let the players establish some roots, meet some NPCs, maybe get invested in a local town and what's going on there in some small way. We like to think of it in two types of stakes. You've got your external stakes, which is what classic fantasy adventures usually deal in. The world's going to end. The town's going to blow up. But why does it matter that these heroes save it? Well, that's the internal stakes. That's finding a way to make it personal to the characters, which is the thing that we're talking about that's missing from so much. And it's one of the most powerful roleplay tools you have as a DM is before they ever start adventuring, make sure they care about the adventure. Right. And if you've just got those external stakes, it kind of leads to a game of checking off tasks because you know that there's a big bad thing on the horizon. And like you said, this is typical to most adventures. They've got the external stakes. There is a thing that's out there somewhere threatening, but we don't have any pressure or any deadline to try to resolve this pressure. And when you've just got internal stakes, it can be hard to push forward. I've run games before where I've focused so much on what the character's motivations are that it's just a kind of a random collection of events that play to those motivations, but there's no grand thing happening. Right. So that's also not super satisfying in the end. Now, having both is the key to satisfying the whole table. There's going to be players that care about their own character. And then there's going to be players that care about the grander story. Most players are a bit of a mix of both. And you're always going to have something to tug on to get the party to move forward with all of those threads. And just because it probably bears repeating, you have to give the party time and the opportunity to get attached to their stakes or even just change them as they explore their character. Now, this can be as, you know, campaign level as letting the players kind of get into character, solve some low-level mysteries, fight a bad guy or two that really isn't that much of a threat. But it can also be as minute. An orphan approaches them on the street with one gap tooth and hands them a nice flower and gives them something to care about, 
before threatening that person. Now, all of a sudden, a gang fight breaks out and you have to stop that. But the orphan's kind of in the middle of it and it could be collateral damage. Yeah. And that could count as stakes, too. There's a reason to not just run away. <laughs> right. The next step is foreshadow. Now you know what to threaten. What are you going to threaten it with? Of course, you're going to try to make it fit the characters, the world, the game that you've kind of established so far. One of the most important things here is to communicate to the party exactly what that threat is. And it's so easily missed because we think as GMs that we should probably keep a little bit of mystery to ourselves and say, you know what? It's inscrutable and you may never find out and you have to progress down the story to find out what's really going on. And this can be a huge misstep. Stating to the players up front, and this is often done in movies and books with a MacGuffin, if so-and-so gets X, then this is going to happen. And you can still have that mystery that you might be craving because we both felt that desire to keep something close to the chest to reveal later. You can have an antagonist that's going to do X bad thing, you know, destroy the world with the MacGuffin, you don't have to reveal their identity. The party at least has to know that there's someone bad that's going to do this bad thing. If the party just gets to wander around until three quarters of the way through the story and then they find out something bad's happening, that's <laughs> that's chaos. Well, and if you're thinking right now to yourself that this sounds kind of familiar, it's probably because a lot of published adventure storylines are missing this one critical piece is that they kind of expect that just because people have shown up to play at your table and everyone has decided, yes, we're playing this role-playing game, that they're kind of just beholden to say yes to anything that gets thrown down, but this is really generally never the case. So a lot of adventures, published adventures, that a lot of really talented people work on kind of just miss this one key piece of showing what the threat is. What is the outcome at the end of this adventure if we are not successful? I mean, just imagine of Lord of the Rings, Gandalf shows up with the ring and he says, here's an X on the map. Transport the ring here. And for the first two <laughs> movies, you don't know why. Six whole <laughs> fucking hours. Traveling along. <laughs> and we're watching Hobbits travel. Going from location to location, maybe getting some drinks at taverns Fighting along some the orcs. way. No reason why. It's yeah. a random encounter. That's why. <laughs> orcs just happen to be there. No, we actually found out that Sauron's coming. Without all those ringwraith scenes, that's the pressure we're talking about. <laughs> God, that worked out better than I thought. That was a great example. <laughs> so as we did, as we saw in Lord of the Rings, we need to add pressure. So this is plotting the stages and figuring out what signposts to show our players along the way that things are going to get worse for them. Right. The party always needs to understand how things are progressing and never be allowed to forget about it because that leads to that, oh, let's just meander about while you as the GM are thinking, well, we started off and I told them that there was impending doom, but unless you're reminding them, they kind of <laughs> lose the thread. Right. And a little tip that we like to add in here is to make these threats increasingly restrictive. So like you start off where they have more freedom to kind of do what they want, go where they please. But with each one of these signposts, their options are narrowing. They have to focus. That's something we learned after a couple of takes at trying this in our own games, but it's really powerful. And to your point, Jord, we have five signposts 
to try to just formulate for ourselves as a GM. We sit down with a notepad and we go, what are five things that we could potentially show within the game world that really makes it clear that things are progressing and they are getting worse? And you come up with those five and then you just order them in order of direness. And at the very least, if you have these planned, they will work way better than not having them. Creating a little bit more of hard choices and funneling them, well, that just comes with a little bit of practice. But at the very least, just having five is going to dramatically increase the intensity of your game. And the really cool thing about having this pressure throughout your game is that all of a sudden, the side quests that you introduce with small objectives are going to put the characters at odds with that rising pressure. So now every side quest becomes an interesting choice to make rather than a, hey, you guys want to do this? Because why not? And to splash back to our example of, say, the orphan and the uh, gang fight that the players have to try and stop, this ranges from just taking a quick moment after initiative is rolled to say, the orphan is hiding underneath a table. That's your first signpost of like, uh-oh, there's other stakes here. All the way up to one of the, the gang members has grabbed the orphan and is using it as a hostage. Oh, <laughs> shit. Now we've got some serious problems. And those are great signposts. So anywhere between those two steps, we've got three more that we can just brainstorm. Yeah, like he's crawling across the ground and a dagger strikes into the earth right behind him or something like that. Yeah, little things like that are just the little asides that you as a GM need to take in order to signpost to your entire table that they better figure their shit out and stop this before it continues to escalate. And that's all we're trying to do with this stage. Then we got danger now, which is that big final moment where everything is hanging on the precipice. This is what you work towards. These are the juicy, dramatic moments. You know, I actually have to rescind my last little comment because I think the gang member grabbing our orphan and using it as a human shield, that is the threat. That is the danger now. Right, right. The next thing that can happen is going to be catastrophic if you don't stop it. Or I can always think of ways to amp it up even more, which is... The gang member took the human shield and is now running away while the rest of the party is in combat. Yeah. So there, you can always make more <laughs> grander stakes. <laughs> that is not generally the struggle of GMs. True. And the first couple times using this whole system, I found that, you know, I was doling out the signpost too slowly. I was on my own kind of timeline. And then the party got to the goal and I realized that I didn't, really ramp up the pressure as much as I wanted to. The cool thing about having this kind of to the side of your adventure is that you can dole it out as appropriate for how fast the party's moving. And you can get straight to danger now if that's what your game requires. Like if the party's about to reach their goal and you haven't felt that pressure, you've got the danger now. Throw it in. Make it intense. And then we have the end. This is the follow through. This is planning out what the effects are of the event, of that danger now. And here we kind of go one of two different routes. What happens if they make it? And what happens if they don't? Because again, this is something that I as a GM got wrong all the time. I always just planned for success. Right. 
and you kind of get into this trap, it's really easy to do where you keep making the mistakes life or death. And then you run into this, oh, well, I guess I have to TPK the party (laughs) if I want to follow through. This really forces a GM to consider what are the consequences beyond just life and death. Like you say, Jordan, it really allows you to consider what happens to the world, not just the players, if things don't go their way. And then it gives you all of those other options to do anything, like you said, but a TBK. Right. And if you plan this out ahead of time, you're going to have a more interesting game because you'll know where to take things if the party fails. You don't have to force them to succeed. So like we said, this can happen on a micro or a macro scale. You can use a ticking clock to plot out your entire campaign from start to finish and figure out ways to keep the party moving towards the eventual goal of your campaign or towards that final confrontation with your big bad. And you can also focus all the way down to a single combat with these steps, which I've been applying for some time now, and I gotta say it's making them way more engaging. Like, when I start with this, my mind just starts to branch off and and add all kinds of interesting pieces to the encounter, and all of a sudden, every round, every character has something interesting to think about and a cool choice to make. Right. And that's why we think that this is one of the most important tools that a new or experienced GM can learn. And I think it's worth showing this in practice and relating it to something that we're probably all familiar with, Die Hard. Yeah, sorry if you're not, but we're talking about Die Hard. And we know that a movie isn't a tabletop RPG. (laughs) And we know that John McClane is not a fantasy (laughs) hero. But it helps to show these steps in practice. And then we're going to get into one of the most fraught relationships that I have with any tabletop adventure module. Now, to put you in the right frame of mind here, I want you to imagine John McClane, played by Bruce Willis in Die Hard, with, instead of guns, they're all (laughs) using wands... And he's got a sweet, wicked helmet, like a fantasy armor helmet on. All right? You with me? <laughs> I thought we were using this as a, like a, a frame of reference that everybody has, but you've just made it crazy, diehard. Yeah, I'm just helping. <laughs> okay, okay. Helping right. the fantasy fans. <laughs> so we need to start with find the stakes. Right, and that starts with the threatenable element. So John McClane has a strained relationship with his wife, which is actually... Kind of what the stakes are. Right. John McClane is traveling to Nakatomi Tower to just have a nice Christmas with his wife because he's been estranged from them and his kids. Yeah. And the external stakes are what we all know and remember, the lives of everyone in the building from the terrorists. And then the internal would be John's wife could die and him with her and all of those, you know, the the immediate threat to them and their life and limb. And really underlying that, his chance to win her back. Right. Of course. Yeah. Just the opportunity to fix their broken marriage. Yeah. So then we need to foreshadow a ton. And the tool we're going to do that with, the threat is the terrorists, of course. So we need some signposts. I mean, it's easy to do in movies because you can show the audience things that the main character doesn't know. And that's the main difference between TTRPGs is just that you can't really show things off screen as easily as movies can. Right. 
But in Die Hard, we got to see the terrorists rolling in with their big trucks and then the terrorists uh, getting set up and starting to put, you know, set up all the dominoes for their complete takeover of Nakatomi Plaza. First is there's terrorists. This is bad. Hide myself. Second is that they're starting to kill people. Okay, they're for real. I'd say another main signpost here is when they get a helicopter. It's like their plan is progressing. Right. And then they start rounding everyone up and taking them to the roof. Which John McClane actually does learn that the terrorists plan to kill all the hostages on the roof, which is like a huge signpost for him. He has to take action or things are going to go wrong real fast. And then you get to the danger now where Gruber has John's wife hostage. He knows who he is. That's the big climactic cliffhanger, really. Yeah, his wife's going to die. That's the whole stakes of the of the movie. Right. And then the super important step of the end, which is he's got two options. In the movie, he succeeds, obviously. But follow through for his failure would have been blowing up the building with the hostages. Would have turned this whole thing into a tragedy, but that would have made for quite the sequel as John McClane struggles with his failure while he's trying to stop Oh. The next batch of terrorists. What? You just fanficked a an alternative <laughs> sequel to Die Hard where it's basically John Wick. He's on a murderous rampage to get revenge for the death of his wife and a, a hundred hostages. Right? Wow. So what we're saying is that Die Hard could have turned out very differently and it would have still been really good. As long as John McClane survives, you've still got plenty to play with there. And seriously, that's a huge lesson for me as a DM because I'm always afraid of giving the bad outcome to my players. But just keep John McClane in mind with his wands. <laughs> John, John's wands. <laughs> and how failure can still be super interesting. Now, in order to keep your players from wrapping up that whole session by starting a new business as John's wands, we need to try and keep them on track. <laughs> So let's relate this more to TTRPGs and let's talk about Storm King's Thunder. Oh boy. So if you are new to the podcast, you may not have heard me rant about Storm King's Thunder. Right. One of the very few of the D&D campaign books that Travis has run and I played in that game. So off the get go, it's worth kind of having a little bit of a rundown. A, if you haven't played this, or you're planning on playing this, maybe skip. 10 minutes or so ahead. There's some spoilies. I'm going to try and keep this as spoiler free as just like high level. I'm not going to give you any names or any locations, but only what is required to really kind of point out the critical flaw in this module. I want to say up front, Storm King's Thunder has some incredible locations, characters, battles, uh, stories, know, yeah. Stories, really great NPCs that I will never forget. And I really, really appreciate it. And I think, Jordan, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there was some really cool scenes that just can't be found anywhere else. Absolutely. Like, it captured that giant feel that you saw on the cover. Like, you wanted those moments where there was... <laughs> giants locked in battle and there's some locations that you wouldn't expect that are just very grand and epic and now i'm going to dunk on it just a little bit because the critical challenge that storm king's thunder suffers from and it's probably really easy to miss you know storm king's thunder had an incredible roster of people working on it you know from chris perkins to 
Richard Witters to Mike Merles, Jeremy Crawford, uh, Matt Cernet, R.A. Salvatore was a story consultant on it. There was top talent working on this module, which is why it's so good. But right in the beginning of it, we've got a paragraph that explains the adventure that says, and I'm quoting here, Storm King's Thunder is not a ticking clock adventure, meaning that characters are under no pressure to end the giant threat quickly. The plots of the giant lords take months to unfold, giving the characters time to explore the north, travel from place to place, and entertain distractions. It was designed this way. But for a lot of us, it's not easy to run that. When you give players, like we said in the beginning, when you give players that much freedom, everything just kind of gets bogged down and nobody knows what to do. Now, there's another piece. If you look up this adventure, that complaint is the primary one that has dogged this otherwise incredible adventure for its entirety of its life is just that sandboxes are interesting, but they certainly require a GM to understand how to run ticking clocks, how to put smaller ticking clocks within their game, because the overall storyline does not have anything resembling a ticking clock. And if you'll permit me, I'll just run you through it really quickly. The adventurers arrive in a town that they've never been. They're already missing villagers, the town. They don't have much money, but please find them. We don't know why, but there's people that are at risk, so your heroes go find them. The town is then attacked by giants, and one villager at the end just gives them another town name and says, maybe something bad's happening over there. Then that town is attacked. Then they wander the world. And that's, <laughs> then you just wander. And and I guess what they're kind of saying is you better have some interesting side quests to fill this world wandering with. And they, they give you a few of them within the book okay. to their credit. But those are really not super related. And they just kind of meander. And then at some point they meet another NPC who takes them to another place. And then another NPC tells them of a bad omen. And all of these NPCs really don't have... There is no time pressure to any of this. So really, just an NPC shows up and says, I've got an interesting place. I think you should come with me. And it requires all of the player characters to just simply be on board. As we were playing, there was definitely a lack of that character investment that we were trying to fix, but we didn't quite know how yet. And honestly, we played for eight months into this campaign where then you are required to go and fight one of six giant lords and try and get a magical item from them who you don't, you're not necessarily certain that they have or where they keep it so it's easily missed. And then eight months into that campaign, you finally get to a place where somebody says, this is what's going on. Uh, a giant king has gone missing and now there's a power vacuum. That's it. That's the story. But that can be stated much earlier <laughs> and then related to the players right. rather than doing this whole like we're just going to globetrot until something happens. Right. And this made us wonder, could we fix Storm King's Thunder with ticking clocks by just thinking a little bit about how to relate it to our players and then how to keep them motivated to find the next clue? Could we resolve all of the conflict that surrounds Storm King's Thunder as a module? Well, we certainly had to try. So the threatenable element, this is almost here, but this is 
not stated anywhere in the module itself that we really need to build the players into the world. We need to make sure that they are established. We need to make sure that they have a home and family and friends that we can threaten. This is why we talk about session zero so much, because it's like in our minds it's one of the most important steps of any game is getting the players invested from the get go. This was the critical failure of mine because I didn't put enough time into this. The players simply washed ashore after a shipwreck into the first town, which meant that they had no ties to the local area or the people that were in it. Now, the external threat is, of course, that these giants are being spurred on to fight by this power vacuum. But this is unknown until about nine months of play. Right. And I think that we could probably get to this a lot quicker because this is the external threat that the giants fighting each other and rooting through towns and destroying towns is not going to stop until this is resolved. I'm not saying that every game has to play out like Die Hard, but I'm just comparing it. That's like John McClane doesn't learn about the terrorists until 20 minutes to the end of the movie. Oh, that's what's going on here. (laughs) (laughs) And really, again, Storm King's Thunder could have been helped by all of those weird, uh, you know, side flashes to the terrorists setting up. If we could see what was happening in the Giants community within their kingdom, within their power structure, the players would get it. But since we have no means of doing that within the context of a tabletop game, other than the DM just simply describing this is what's happening in another place or time, that could potentially work, but that doesn't exist within this module. So what do we do? Well, we need to add those personal threats. This party needs to have roots in that town, like I said. So someone close to them is being threatened. Someone in any town is being threatened. And that's what I would change if I were to run this again today, is I would say, okay, players, everyone needs somebody to care about. Whatever town you're coming from, that town is going to be under threat at some point during this campaign, and I need to get that across right away. Like it wouldn't even hurt to do some building the party up, getting them together. Right, or just news of all of the towns that are getting hit by giants currently. Yeah. This is kind of... In this adventure module, there's a detail within the story that some of the giants are hitting some towns because of something that is inside them. And I would take this to the exponential level that the giants know that this item sits underneath a town, which town has been lost to history, which means all of them are after the same item. Now, in the module, it's a little bit different. Every giant lord is after their own kind of weird way to become dominant giant type. In the module, we need to have them go after one thing, and it needs to be buried under a town. None of them know which one, which means that the giants are going to decimate every town looking for it. Right. And I think that could be communicated pretty well to the party. Like, oh, they're going to go on a rampage. This is bad. These are some external stakes. Well, exactly. And so... The next step is that we need to foreshadow. We need to get this across that this is what is happening early, early on. Like I said, it took us nine months to get there in the original module. But after the very first encounter with a giant in the very first session, 
with the attack on the very first town, the dying giant tells in an interrogation and spills the whole storyline. You little folk can't possibly beat us. We are after domination. And one of the giant types, we, the fire giants, are going to rise to dominance. And we will find what we are looking for underneath one of your towns. You puny humans mean nothing to us. Yeah, why not? Uh, you could have a warlock who has a terrible vision, a prophecy of doom, and they see giants ripping something out of the earth underneath one of the towns. But this little detail change fixes a lot of the issues of Storm and King's Thunder. Well, that's what I love about considering your players and their characters, too, because you've got the information that you want to give, Travis, and then you kind of just consider maybe somebody just knows it because there were, you know, some characters' backstories that were raised among giants. Okay, so they know all about this stuff. This is stories of one day when the king is gone, there will be an opportunity for our giant type to raise up. And I'm a Goliath, so obviously <laughs> I heard this as a bedtime story. Yeah. So now we have our ticking clock. Now all we need to do is signpost. We need to see people in town asking for help or lamenting their loss or have one of the players lose something or get word via messenger that their personal home decimated and now it's a race against the giants to find out what they're after we can signpost by towns getting wiped out with only a crater in the middle where they've been dug up we can start to see huge trains of refugees going from one town to another like you say like that's a great idea yeah for you guys you have to hurry you have to take whatever lead I throw at you because this is only getting worse. And then eventually a signpost is just that no matter where you're traveling, you're trying to avoid giant parties that are like crossing the landscape. Right. Lots of possibilities. Now, the danger now that I would probably throw in if I was running Storm King's Thunder today would be the reveal that it is, in fact, the largest city in the region that the final piece that they are looking for is underneath that city. So now they are going after the water deeps or the Baldur's gates of the world. Right. And of course, every, you know, try to give your party relationships and connections in that city too. And what I love about this particular story is that the resolution is not in fighting the giants. The resolution is in restoring the king to restore order to the giants, which means that this adventure takes the party away from where the action is. They have to get to this point where they decide to go after the king rather than just simply fighting giants and hoping that they can stop all of this tragedy, which is one hell of a decision point, let me tell you, of like, we're going to go where the action isn't in order to stop it. Right. The flow makes much more sense to me because you've still got a twist that happens 80% of the way through, but it's not the entire story. And these changes don't change Storm King's Thunder. You could still use every bit of content that was written into that book, except the major change that we've made is that you're just putting that ticking clock at the very beginning of your story. You're letting the players know what the stakes are and what's going to happen if they don't. And I hope that this has been helpful because really... When you need to motivate players, use a ticking clock. Use a grand one. If you really want to push people to a destination, 
Use a subtle one. Uh, you know, make the stakes less intense if you just want to gently nudge them in that direction. Or don't use any ticking clock at all if you want to give the players the feeling of being lost, of having a wide open world that they're just feeling uncomfortable and unfamiliar in and unsure of what action to take next, but do it with intention rather than just running 12 months of Storm King's <laughs> Thunder without having any idea how to move players to the next story point. <laughs> Josh has got some uh, issues from I've that. been, oh, that's uh, a couple of years. You know, I dare not disparage Storm King's Thunder because of some of the folks that worked on it. But I think that they did an incredible job. But even the kind of experience that worked on this module missed this one critical thing. And I did too for years and I will never do it again. And I just want to say that we do recognize that there's groups out there that genuinely enjoy that totally open sandbox game style. We just definitely aren't them. And in our experience, we haven't played with any of them. So this is how we like to game. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we found success in doing. So, And I've DM'd a lot of groups and I just have not met any that really flourish in a sandbox environment. It takes a special type. Now, you can find this same structure on the new GM mat that we recently added to our store at hookandchance.com. We have a whole planning mat. It's available there. It's a big old desktop mat that you can use as a keyboard and a mouse mat for your desk, but it's got fantastical magical designs all over it and inlaid within those magical designs is everything that you need to plan out your campaign or your session yeah it's got lots of juicy inspiration take a look see if you want it if you think this could help a fellow gm i wholeheartedly implore you to share it post this episode on your socials Post about it on Reddit. Share the wealth because, God damn it, this was one of the hardest won lessons that I have ever learned as a GM. I know we've talked about that at, at length, but honestly, I don't do anything without a ticking clock anymore, and I think that it could help a lot of folks. Hey, just a quick editor's note. We forgot to mention that we actually made a PDF that you can download that will help walk you through how to add your own ticking clocks into your game. That's available at hookandchance.com. This is the year of growth, especially for this podcast. We can't do it without you. Our YouTube is growing, our Discord is growing, and twice monthly hangouts are popping off as of late. And it is all been thanks to you. And so we're going to continue to rely on you <laughs> to help. <laughs> help uh, grow it and make it what it is and what it can be. Absolutely. We really appreciate all the support from 2022. We're really excited for 2023. We've got a lot of projects and a lot of plans to execute on this year. And a lot of games to play. I genuinely hope you do too. And speaking of support in 2023, welcome to brand new patrons, Kaleidoscope, Skylar E, and Deadman. It is so amazing that you decided to support us. 
financially. And we have them, as well as many others, to thank for this episode, including Kirk T. Ninja Ducky. Sue Art. Blackthorn. First Law. Peacock Dreams. DM Thunderbum. Marley R. Time Warp. Dangerous Marmalade. Zach G. No Ma'am. Michelle T. Adlerius. Chris F. The Senate. Lucas D. Lila G. The GM Tim. Nevermore. Thomas W. DM Natsuki. Heavy Arms. Leprechaun. And Will HP. Thank you all so, so much for the support. We hope this year we can really wow you with some of the content that we have planned. And we do not take a single episode that you support us on for granted. Thank you. Thanks also to Tabletop Audio for the sound effects you heard in this episode. You can follow us at Hook and Chance on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit. Don't know how much good it'll do you, because the best place <laughs> to talk to us is on the awesome and incredible community on Discord, where that's where the cool stuff happens, in my opinion. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening and, and my wife Creek died at Nakatomi Plaza, and that's why I opened it John's Wands. <laughs> Seems like a real people person. Okay. <laughs>